Let's uh, bow our head in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to proclaim your word and give what I hope will be some good advice on how to do some witnessing. And Lord, I thank you that you are my God, so put me out of the way and use me as a vessel to get your message across. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. At the end of my talk a couple of weeks ago, some people wanted to know what happened to that person in our village who spent 17 years in a prison camp. So I thought I'd spend five minutes and get you up to speed on that before uh, I enter into the message, which will relate to that in a way. B and I lived in a small <clears throat> village in Germany. Our daughter was going to German school. We put her in German school, six, seven years old. Perfect time to learn a language. We said, we're not sending her to an American school or a DOD school. We'll send her to the local German school. And it turned out to be smart. Not for anything we did, but for things that happened since then. Uh, as a matter of fact, the fact that she was in that school saved her job during this COVID uh, about a month ago. So, but I won't go into that. Anyway, <clears throat> at the end of their little village is a restaurant, typical German restaurant. And in Germany, you don't, if you have some kind of function, like a birthday or something like that, you usually go to the restaurant area in the village to have a party or have a get-together or hire a band or whatever you want to do. They don't entertain that much in their houses. So our landlady owned this restaurant. And B and I would walk down through the village about once every week or so, have dinner, and just uh, enjoy the company and try to learn more of the language. So uh, we're there one day, and uh, we get ready to pay our bill. And the proprietor puts up his hand and says, your bill has been paid. And I said, why is my bill paid? I didn't give you any money. And he said, uh, Herr Schultes over here has paid your bill. I may have to stop from time to time as I get through this. I may get emotional. So I thanked him. Didn't think anything of it. Then... Ten days later, we're in the same restaurant, and the same thing happens. And so I go over to Herr Schultes, and I say, why are you paying my bill? 
And I said, well, he said, well, I have something. Let me tell you my story, which is where I'm going to tell you. I have to have a little bit of a geography lesson. We lived in what was called the Sarland, which is a border area between Germany and Belgium and France. And this area had been fought over for years. France had taken over for 100 or 150 years, and the Germans would come in, take it over for 100, maybe 150 years. It'd be independent for a while. And then, the, so they were constantly fighting back and forth of this small area, which was about 30 miles wide and about 50 miles long. Well, when Hitler invaded, the first thing he did was take the Saarland. And my friend was telling me, I didn't think anything of it at the time, until I come home one day and I drive into the driveway. Yeah, I'm going to have to. And there's my whole family on their knees my wife and my four children. Behind each one of them was a Nazi soldier with a pistol to their heads. So each of my four children, or his four children, and his wife had a pistol in his hand or her head. So he asks, what is going on? And the sergeant in charge says, you've been inducted into the Wehrmacht. You have five minutes to get your stuff together and get in the truck. And he had a truck parked there which had some people in it. And he said, you can't induct me into the Wehrmacht. I am not German. I am a Saarland. I'm a free person. And the sergeant said, uh, Mr. Schultes, when we took over German, the Saarland, you became part of Germany. And in addition, you are, as far as the army is concerned, you can be abducted and inducted into the army. Now we have, I'm going to give you five minutes to go upstairs, pick up personal belongings that you need, and get into the truck. And we can debate this as long as we want, but this is what I'm going to do. At the end of five minutes, I'm going to close my eye, I'm going to point. And whatever soldier is standing in back Oh, whichever member of your family is holding the gun to the head will pull the trigger. You have five minutes. Go upstairs, get personal effects, throw them in some kind of bag and get in the truck. The guy protested again. He says, you can't do this to me. 
Ich bin nicht Deutscher. I am not German. He said, you now have four minutes and 30 seconds. So the guy realized, Herr Schultes realized that it was no point arguing with this guy because what's going to happen is one of his family members is going to die. So he runs upstairs, gets whatever stuff he can, and jumps in the back of the truck. And the truck takes off, and it has several other recruits with him. What happened to Air Shoulders, we found out later, was he was put on the Western Front and was captured by the Germans. No, I'm sorry, by the Russians. And when he was captured by the Russians, they put him in a concentration camp in Siberia. The war ended. There's no information on him or where he is or what he's doing, or even if he's existed. So he's listed as an MIA, missing in action. And after five years, you're presumed to be dead. Well, somehow, after the war, the Russians denied that they had kept any prisoners of war. And the world believed them. But actually, what they had was this concentration camp in Siberia that had started with over 10,000 people. Out of that 10,000 people, only 100 survived. I don't know the whole story, but somebody escaped from the POW camp and made it to the frontier and got to the American side and blew the whistle on what the Russians were doing to certain German POWs. And there was a big international stink about it. Probably wasn't reported here in the United States, but it was all over the papers in Europe. And the Russians were forced to release the survivors of those concentration camps that they had in secret in Siberia. And he was one of the ones that was released. They notified his family that he was still alive. But it would be six months before he would be allowed to come home. They had a special hospital, the Red Cross did, for prisoners of war. Because they were now just walking skeletons filled with all kinds of diseases. So it took them six months before they considered him healthy enough to be released. So the Red Cross was driving up to their home, and their family decided to 
re-encapsulate the last view that he had of them. So as they drove up his driveway, and he got out of the car, there was his wife, four children on their knees like they, he had last seen them. Instead of having Nazi Gestapo in back of them with guns to their head, was their 14 grandchildren. And I said, well, Herr Schultz, what does that have to do with me? He says, well, Herr Thompson, you're the only American I know. And I derive great pleasure from buying you and Frau Thompson there. And I said, Herr Schultz, I was not even alive when the war started. I have nothing to do with the war. In the meantime, his wife is talking to my wife on the side. I could hear a little chatter going on. And basically, it went something like this. His wife said to my wife, B, said, Frau Thompson, let him buy it. Let him buy you dinner. It gives him great joy to do that. So the rest of the time we lived there, which was three years, every time we went to that restaurant, and Herr Schultz was there, he bought us dinner. After 17 years of captivity, you would have thought he would be tremendously angry and bitter. But he was the happiest man I ever met. Joy just poured out of him everywhere. I'd be walking down the street to the village to do some shopping, and he'd be on the other side of the sidewalk and he would say, Guten Tag, Herr Thompson. Hello, Mr. Thompson. This is Schönes Wetter heute. It's a nice day today. And I would say, it's not nice, it's pouring rain. <laughs> In Germany, it rains a lot. <clears throat> That's not nice. And he said, Herr Thompson, Every day is a good day. And for him it was. So every now and then, when I think I'm having a tough time, I remember this guy. And I remember how easy we have it here. And this is going to lead into my uh, my sermon here in a minute. We don't understand or appreciate how easy we have it in the United States. 
So, I was looking for something to talk about a couple of weeks ago, and I went to John 14, where the Lord tells the disciples to be of good cheer. Even though he knows that he's about to be crucified. <clears throat> so uh, let's look now to John chapter 14. And if I get a little long, Pastor. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three of the disciples and the fear that they had and how it ended for them. And I'm going to make it, hopefully I have time to make an application for your witnessing at the end. Okay, uh, I like to read responsibly. Hope you guys don't mind that. So I'll read it if you read it back to me. Let's start with John 14, 1. We did this a couple of weeks ago. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, with this verse, doubt creeps into the apostles' minds. Uh-oh. He's taken off. He's leaving us. He says he's coming back, but he's really not coming back. And we're going to be left to face the mob by ourselves. In verse 3, the Lord tries to calm them down a little bit. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself to where I am. There ye may be also. Verse 4. And whither I go, ye know. And the way ye know. So we have the first objection. They're thinking in their minds, the Lord is going to live them, and they're going to be on their own, and he's just making up excuses, and we're in big trouble. The first verse where it says, let not your heart be troubled, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. When somebody tells me, oh, don't worry about it, guess what I do? Don't worry about it. <laughs> I think we all do that because we're human. So here's the first objection. 
Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? So Thomas is the first one to object and disbelieve what the Lord has said. It's important that we understand that all the apostles were terrified from the crucifixion until the resurrection, and they went into hiding, most of them. They were scared for their lives. Try to put yourself in their position. The Lord who has given them and provided for them for everything for three and a half years has done all kinds of miracles, is now saying, he's leaving. <laughs> Why doesn't he just do a miracle and make all this go away? <clears throat> and that would be our natural reaction. So that's objection number one from Thomas. Let's go to objection number two. And we'll just keep on reading. Verse 6. Jesus, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can cometh unto the Father but by me. Most people here have memorized this verse as part of their ability to give out the gospel to others. I think probably 99% of you all would use this verse to do that. So Jesus answers them, hey, verse 7, if ye had known me, you should have known my father. should say my father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. So what he's basically saying in modern English is Thomas, you're looking at the father. I am the father in human form. You have nothing to worry about. Well, Thomas doesn't come back. But now verse 8, Philip objects. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father. And it sufficeth us. In other words, it's sufficient. Verse 7, he just said, if you're looking at me, you're seeing the Father. Thomas has not, I'm sorry, Philip now bucks up and says, show us the Father. I just, he just showed you the Father. He just said who the Father was. But doubt is now totally overtaking the apostles. 
And verse 9, I think you can see Jesus getting to lose a little bit of patience here. Still reading, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you? And ye has, and hast thou not known me? And he puts Philip there with a question mark. So the Lord is saying, How we've been together three and a half years. I've taught on this a million times. You've seen all the miracles I did. And here we are face to face. And you claim you don't know who I am. So now, he answers it again. So picking up on 9b, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then show us the Father. So really what Philip is saying is, you're playing games with us, Lord. I don't believe what you're saying. How can you have me look at you and say that you are the Father? And how can you now say after three and a half years of being with me and hearing all my teachings, seeing all the miracles, you don't understand this? Verse 10. Jesus still speaking. Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Once again, the Lord is trying to make it clear to them about his deity. I and the Father are one. When you look at me, you're seeing the Father. When you see my works, you're seeing the Father at work. So, now we're going to skip. And uh, uh, let's skip down to the third apostle's objection. I'm not going to, it would take too long to go through everything here that the Lord said, and you can read it for yourself. So let's go to verse 22. The third objection. Judith saying to him, and you should have a note in your Bible saying, not Iscariot, this is not Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. This is another fellow named Judas. Lord, how is it? That thou wilt manifest thyself unto us. And not unto the world. So what Judas is saying is, what you're asking us to believe is impossible to believe. 
you're going to show yourself to us and the world's not going to see you. How can that possibly be? Well, we know later that the Holy Spirit will come and manifest Christ to them, all those that accept him as Lord and Savior. And he explains that in verse 26. So let's do 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So the Holy Spirit is going to reside in us and reveal the things of the Father to each and every believer. They don't understand this at this point. And it's not till the resurrection occurs that it clicks with them and they understand. Now let's go back to Herr Schultes for a minute. What if this wonderful story that he told us is false? How would I prove that's true. Well, how would you do it? You could ask members of his family. You could ask his children. You could go to the Red Cross, which were keeping track of all the prisoners of war and see if he was listed there. There would be objective evidence that it is true. Now, the problem that most Christians have when they're out witnessing is when somebody challenges them and says something like this. You Bible believers just believe a bunch of fables. There's no truth to this. You just make up pleasant stories. How do you respond? And one of the reasons I'm doing this, because it has been asked of me many times. So I want you to put this in your brain that there is a good response, okay? So my usual response to somebody like that is, what is your criteria of truth? If I'm in a courtroom, And I say, and I take the oath, and I say, I promise to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's a pretty low barrier. If I lie, there's really nobody there to counteract me. But the Lord, but what if I said something like this? 
You could kill me, you could torture me, and I will never recant. You could kill and torture all the other apostles, and they will never recant. They will bear witness with their lives that what I'm telling you is true. So the criteria of truth here is the very life of every single apostle. That's why we can, one of the reasons why we can have absolute certainty that this book is the word of God in every single word. Now turn with me to Revelations, chapter 12. Here the Lord lays down the objective, the objective criteria of truth in the Bible. By the way, in verse, we're going to look at uh, uh, Revelation 12, 11. Him is Satan. Okay. So let's read this together. And they overcame him. By the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. Now get this last phrase. And they loved not their lives unto the death. The objective criteria in the Bible is the death of the apostles. Every single one of them were executed and died so that you and I could have absolute confidence that this is the Word of God. So, I did a little Google search. How did these guys die? So here's my list. Matthew, speared to death in, Opia, in Ethiopia, then beheaded. James, thrown off a wall and clubbed to death. Jude, not, uh, <clears throat> not Judas, but Jude, crucified. Philip, hung upside down by hooks till he died. Peter, crucified upside down by the order of Nero. Thomas, let's spend a second on Thomas. Remember, Thomas was the first one to jump up and say, this can't be true. That's why he's called Doubting Thomas. What did Thomas do after the resurrection? He wouldn't believe unless he actually felt the wounds on Christ himself. So Thomas, 
Obviously, he was convinced. He was run through with a spear. Simon was crucified. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross, just to be different, to be mean. The powers of be took the cross and bent it into an X like that, and then crucified him on an X-shaped cross. Bartholomew flayed to death by whips. Had whips and had hooks on it, and they hit him with the whip, and then the hooks would go into the flesh, and they'd yank it. And they keep doing that until the person, all his flesh was pulled off, and he died. The only one to die of natural causes, John, died in Patmos of natural causes. Not one of the original 12, but most people, including Paul, beheaded in Rome, again at the order of Nero. James the Lesser, there's two Jameses, so I want to make sure we don't get confused. There's James the brother of Christ and James the Lesser. <clears throat> this James was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. They threw him. Right? And I don't know how high the, the temple was at that time, probably 100 feet or so. And then they beat him to death when he splattered on the street below. Even the one that betrayed him, Judas, hung himself. Here, he was the betrayer of Jesus, yet he himself knew that what Jesus was, the Messiah. Now, how can we can use this information in a practical way? First of all, and I always look for practicality. I'm a practical guy. <clears throat> if you're challenged and you're witnessing by somebody that says something like this, well, you Christians have a nice story, but it's all just made up. There's no proof for any of it. So you need to memorize this response. The first response is, what is your criteria of proof? Most people will be stunned when you answer a question, because they think they've got you. And you could say something like this. If I take an oath, is that satisfactory criteria of proof to you? Don't want to get political, but we've just witnessed a bunch of politicians take an oath to totally support and defend the Constitution. hate to say it, but I think they're a bunch of liars. Mm -hmm. They have no intention of doing that. So 
you critique me, tell me what your standard is. Is your standard witnesses? Jesus did his miracles in front of hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. That's how Christianity spread so rapidly. So it had a tremendous head start. Give you a practical example of how I use that. When I was in the service, one of my sergeants was a Mormon. And this particular person considered was a girl, considered it her female duty to convert me to Mormonism. <laughs> and she brought home the Book of Mormon for me to read, and B gave it to me. Well, I didn't know what was going to happen, but I read it, and I made sarcastic comments <laughs> in the side of the book which said this can't be true because of this, it can't be true of that. Well, she asked for her book back when I wasn't there, and B, my wife, gave her back the book. And when she read those comments, she went ballistic. So the next thing I know, there's seven Mormon missionaries showing up at my front door. And uh, uh, actually, it was kind of fun. I said, well, seven Mormons, is, is that all you could rustle up with seven? <laughs> seven Mormons against one Christian. Ah, that's a fair fight. Let's go. <laughs> uh, I try, and it takes practice, because when you are witnessing, there are going to be times when you're personally going to be insulted. So just let that roll off you. Try to have a, a, a quiet, positive approach. Otherwise, if you get mad at them, you just turn them off, and you've missed the opportunity to witness. Okay. So anyway, these seven Mormons show up, including one of the chief guys that's in charge of training new Mormons in how to witness for their faith. So these guys are all puffed up, and they're going to take this Christian, and they're going to whip him around pretty good. I couldn't wait for this all to happen. <laughs> so uh, I got chairs and put them all in kind of a semicircle in my front porch. And I had one question to ask. I said, how do you know that the Book of Mormon is true? What is your criteria of truth that enable you to determine that it is true? And I'd never considered that before. I thought for a second, and they were all mumbling to each other. 
And they said, well, witnesses. I said, well, what witnesses do you have? You have Joseph Smith and one other witness. You have, all, you have two witnesses that said that this angel called, I think, Moroni came down and gave them the Book of Mormon. And he said, well, how many witnesses do you have? And I said, thousands. If you count all the miracles that Jesus did, all the people that saw him after, before and after the crucifixion, they were in the thousands. See, one thing that is totally different about Christianity than the false religions is Christ did everything openly so everybody could see. He wasn't hiding anything. But these guys have based a whole religion on one person, Joseph Smith, and one witness. And my answer was quite simple. What criteria do you have that they're not lying? I've got thousands of witnesses that saw what, what the Lord did. And I've got 13 apostles who gave their lives because it was true. As far as I can tell, all Joseph Smith is doing is chasing women in skirts. <laughs> They got a little bit mad when I made that comment. <laughs> and they had two people with them that were their students. And one of the students piped up and said, Mr. Thompson, can I come later and talk to you privately? I want to hear about this Jesus that has thousands and thousands of witnesses and who has apostles, every one of which gave their lives to prove that what they said was true. Well, the chief of the Mormon group, that's it. Everybody out. Everybody in the van. As soon as one of the younger ones showed an interest in learning that, he got he hustled them out of there as fast as could. I hope a seed was planted with that individual and he became a Christian. I don't know what happened to him after that. So that is a good practical application of this information that you've got today. If somebody attacks your Christianity based on the fact that they believe because that's what they've been told in school, that things in the Bible are just made up, feel-good stories. You have now got practical, hard information that you can counteract that with. And I hope you remember it, and you'll do it. I like open forums. 
Got any questions? Anybody like to whip me anything on me? Those of you that knew me when I was here before know I love a good debate. And I had no problem debating anybody till Terry came along. <laughs> and he outwhipped me on a couple of occasions. <laughs> Does it make sense to you? Do you think you could use this information in a practical way? I think you can. Because that's one of the major ways that they're going to attack you when you try to witness. They're going to say, this book is just a bunch of made-up stories. And now you've got good information to prove that's not the case. Uh, 